What sort of rings? Rings that talk. Could you show me these talking rings? Speak. Of what? Things no one here understands. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad. He's my son. And we're continuing with what I think is turning out to be H.G. Wells Month. I think so. Because I made Ian watch another movie. And last episode, we talked about the 1953 George Powell movie adapting H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yeah. Today, we're talking about the 1960 movie by George Powell, adapting H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Wait, what? Dad, we haven't watched a movie yet. Okay, hang on. What are you talking about? (laughs) We can fix that, don't worry. Okay, yeah. No problem. Actually, no, yeah. We watched The Time Machine. (laughs) (laughs) And this was another one of those movies that showed up on the 4.30 movie in the afternoons at least once a year. And I would watch this, and it definitely grabbed my attention in different ways over the years. But it's it's uh, it's an impressive movie, I think, and it's in a way. Yeah, okay. And I'm intrigued because I honestly stepped in like, I know the story and everything, but I didn't expect this movie to have any impact on me. And instead, it hit me with a nostalgic action I was never expecting. This thing had a t- like this thing tied back to stuff for me, and I'm I'm shocked and surprised and delighted by it. <laughs> what kind of things did it, did it tie back to, or do you want to save that? I'm gonna save that because I've got like once we start talking about the design in this film is when I can actually bring it in. Because this thing's got a kind of an interesting look to it. It's got a very it's got a very like interesting visual style, I think. It does. For me, this really solidified p- the potential of steampunk before steampunk became a thing. Yeah. It was that, that I'd say, adaptations of H.G. Wells and of Jules Verne are really what fueled that aesthetic for a lot of people. I almost want to split steampunk as a style into two different camps. There's rust steampunk and there's filigree steampunk. And this really falls into the more the filigree where there's like all these nice little details and metal working things tied on. And it's not the it's not the gears and grease steampunk that you see some other things go for. And that kind of bugs me about so much steampunk. It 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 dwells so deeply on the Victorian trappings like you see in this movie. And, you know. I just think that steampunk has a lot more potential than just trying to technologize Victorian England. Yeah. I want more steampunk with Winchester rifles and Stetsons. Oh, yeah, that's pretty fun. That's a fun thing. But this was very much in that Victorian high-tech for its time, or high-tech envisioned in a way that made sense in its time that you see in a lot of H.G. Wells adaptations, and that you can read into H.G. Wells as well. Yeah. In some ways, the fact that this has this social dynamic aspect and this this design aesthetic to its its past and its present and the like, I, I would say that it doesn't mean anything if it wasn't for one very big plot point, which plays very well. Well, just to kind of set the stage, uh, both a spoiler for anybody who hasn't seen this or read it, and to kind of get us all on the same page uh, for anybody who has, this is uh, this movie stars Rod Taylor, also Yvette Mimu, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, and Alan Young in a really good supporting role we'll have to talk about. And Rod Taylor plays... The person who in the, the novella is just referred to as the time traveler. I don't believe he's ever given a name by Wells. I don't think so. But he is an, a, a tinkerer, an inventor, a visionary, and he builds a time machine. Mm-hmm. And he's presenting this to his friends. 
in a big in like a and he's invited them all to lunch and we get to intro we get introduced to all these four other people first and then he is the inventor they're all coming to see it's one of those all the supporting cast before the main character kind of openings but it works and alan young plays one of those friends david philby who is in some ways i I, never mind in some ways who is clearly this person's rod taylor's character's closest friend the Watson to his homes who knows him best who cares about him the most with the possible exception of his housekeeper who takes care of him to the extent that uh, that she can and that the the time traveler the inventor is apparently not an inventor who can just like publish in academic journals or present things to the royal society so he as you say he is presenting this to his little group of friends uh who he invited for dinner and just in the way they're describing him they paint a picture of a man who is kind of he reminds me of our main character in the absent-minded professor in terms of the same kind. They're painting a picture of a guy with that same sort of exploration of science for science's sake, a little bit disconnected and a little bit not aware of the rest of the things outside of his lab and his house kind of mentality. Yeah, I'd say that's very true. This is of that same archetype, that same trope of the absent-minded professor. The, exactly. The person who is better with his ideas and the machines that they result in than he is with other people. Although he does seem to genuinely care about Philby and Philby's friendship. Oh, yes. But Philby's expressions of concern, please don't do anything rash, those are never going to restrain him from actually trying his amazing experiments and adventures. Right. But he's built himself a time machine. And I think it's kind of cool the way they introduce that, because they introduce it with a miniature. Yes. He's revealing the time machine. It's this little tiny thing in a box on his desk. And and that's uh, the 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 ornate Victorian trappings of the whole thing. They, he's but he's demonstrating the principle of moving physical objects arbitrarily through time or or steering them through time. By showing off a precisely crafted and sculpted and engineered miniature of a working model that a person could could ride in if it were full scale it's not just a prototype it's not just an engineering demonstration this is he actually built the thing at a tiny scale and And, it works and it's this like this like velvet padded chair with a with a chronometer kind of thing in front of him and a giant lever mechanism and a giant spinning wheel behind him, all all encased in this like Zamboni like like brass wire cage kind of. Sort of, yeah. It's got a brass rail around it and the yeah. giant, giant spinning wheel, which seems to be what propels it through time in the back of it. And it's in this it's ornate padded box, like you said. It's and to demonstrate time travel, he actually reaches in and moves the little lever, just like the person's riding in it would, and they watch it disappear. It's like, you could have demonstrated the, the principle a lot less expensively and a lot more understandably, I think. But that's not the way he does things, and not the way things were expected to be done then, I guess, is the idea. And the problem is that I saw this little tiny model... And I had very distinct memories of a very similarly designed machine piloted by a black and white Jack Russell Terrier. And I spent the rest of this moving movie realizing that this movie is the basis for the Wishbone episode, Bark to the Future. <laughs> which is Wishbone's adaptation of the time machine. And so there's plenty of visual stylistic beats that hit so precisely between them that it threw me for a loop. So on Wishbone, it wasn't just a, a uh, an episode about the H.G. Wells story. It, they, they took all their design cues from the George Powell produced movie or George Powell directed movie. They put the dog in a little suit that kind of looks like the way the main <laughs> character is dressed. The little cart sled they've got him on is like, it's the entire chair and lever setup without the wheel. I like that. I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, it makes sense. This is the iconic version of this 
story for them to be basing on outside of the book itself when they're doing a visual interpretation. But it was also just so like spot on. It just rang such a clear bell. It was wild to my mind. I think this, this really did solidify the imagery of that story for a lot of people. First of all, a lot of people saw this movie who had never seen, who had never read the book, but also it is such a well put together and such a coherent design aesthetic that they put together that it 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 is very compelling and very attractive to say oh this is what the time machine looks like and why would you go out of your way to change it it is pretty accurate i think to the way it's described in the book and it, it just looks great yeah and of course to absolutely no one's surprise uh our, our hero has not just made a little poly pocket version of his time machine he has also made a full-size model, yep. which he decides to take off in as New Year's Day 1900 is being rung in by the church bells. And they take a very nice long time with voiceover and everything for him to like observe what it's like to travel through time and to see the world changing around him. And I mean, modern audiences, I give you a, a warning and a heads up now, this is probably like one of the least epileptic friendly scenes I've ever seen in anything on film. Yeah, photosensitive viewers should be careful. And it's these wildly trippy visuals going back and forth, but we can we get this very calm voiceover just analytically assessing what he's seeing and how time is changing around him. It feels a little bit audiobook-like in a good way at that moment. Yeah, it's like we're getting his... His laboratory notes and his field notes, but he's writing his laboratory notes and his field notes the way an educated person of the 1890s would write them. Yeah. And when he takes off in the time machine, that's when we get a glimpse of what I think is a nice touch. Like I said, in the book, we never get a name for the time traveler. In the movie, his friends all refer to him as George. And... The instrument plate, which is really just a lever and a, dial, a set of dials that show years, months, and dates, engraved into that is manufactured by H. George Wells. Oh, I hadn't seen that. I love it. So that's where they got George from, H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells. Oh, brilliant. Uh, he is the time traveler. He is a stand-in for H.G. Wells, as the time traveler in the book kind of was. So I thought that was a nice touch because it's one thing to not refer to him by a name, by a given name in text. It's another to try to go through the entire movie without any characters referring to him if when we're listening to all the dialogue. Yeah, there, there's some yeah, there's some issues to be able to like move that into to visual medium, and this, that's a good way to solve it. And we then move into an act of this movie. That's an interesting little set of vignettes about history. Yeah. In the time when he was, was leaving, there was a lot of talk about war. The Boer War was going on. His friends were trying to persuade him to use his engineering talents to help the war effort, not go on these weird uh, explorations. And his first stop is in the 19-teens. Uh. And... Uh, uh, oh, and his friend David Philby had just had a, a little one. Yes. Just had a son back in 1900. And of course, he, he his first stop is in the middle of World War One. It's really awkward to show up as a man who is who looks as old as everyone else, but you're in out-of-date clothes, and everyone's talking about... Everyone is, like, very confused by the fact that you don't know there's a war going on. Not only is he not over-serving, which maybe he, he looks young and healthy enough to do, but he doesn't even know about the war. And he learns about it by talking to Philby. Not yeah. David Philby, David's son James, who's now grown and who's in, the, who's in uniform. And a great little part of this dual role by Alan Young, playing Philby in 1900, playing Philby's son later on. and, and trying to be understanding and yet not really understanding himself what this strange visitor could be talking about. Where have you been and how do you not know about the war? And, uh, and no, my, my father was killed. It was the first step towards, oh, the future isn't going to be the wonderful place that I assume it's going to be. 
because George had this vision that, of course, people, ma- mankind will get more and more advanced, will develop more and more reason and understanding, and things like war and, and the like will be, will be no more. Well, he quickly realizes, well, by, by 1917 or so, it's certainly not gone. And we kind of get something about uh, our time traveler before that from his friends when they're talking about, like, oh, wow, if we'd had this during uh, the Boer War, and like the Boer Wars, it would have been so much better. You know, there's military applications for this time travel technology, and he's not understanding like, you know, why aren't you making stuff like weapons and such? That's what we need. Oh, no, I'm not going to. You're making this time travel stuff. Then we're not going to need that unless it has military applications. <laughs> and then when he goes to the future and there's a war going on, it's a little bit of like his friends were saying that's what, where the money is going to be. And they were right. And that's also a terrifying statement. Like the other inventors are talking about, you know, military materials and such early and he goes into a future where they're being used. <laughs> now, his friends, though, they weren't inventors, were they? There was they a, were in a doctor, the, there was a shop. There were different conflict. fields, but they're yeah. talking about, like, investment. In, like, oh, I paid, I put some money into this. Yeah. And they're talking about, like, what's the inventor, what's our inventor friend doing? <laughs> well, he's not making any of this stuff, so. Although, in their defense, I don't, when they, when they were kind of pestering him to devote his talents towards the war effort, I don't think they were talking about profiteering or making money from it. I think they were talking more about your empire and your, your queen need you. You should be serving them. I got a mixed thing there. At least one of them I thought was talking about the profit. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. There were, there were there were a mix of personalities there. Yeah. But yeah, he uh, he. I, I, I get the impression that he thought investing engineering and intellectual effort into anything to do with war. Why bother? War is going to be a thing of the past as soon as we grow up a little bit more. And you know, he first thing first place he stops, he sees another war is is going on. Yeah. And then next second place he stops, 1940, during the Blitz. There's another war going on, and London is once again in peril. And he arrives just in time to hear, like, sirens and air raid and such, and start to be concerned about that. And then he goes on to 1966. Yeah. So this is the first stop that is after the date the movie was made. Mm-hmm. And what's happening in 1966? Another war. Another war. This time with atomic satellites and radiation suits and all of the trappings of, wow, World War III is going to be devastating now that we all have atom bombs. It's, it's, a, it's, a, proper, it's a, a proper nuclear terror kind of setting he lands in. And it's an elderly James Philby he winds up talking with there, the guy who was a young man in, in 1917. Who's now seen multiple of these and is, and is starting to catch on, telling him like to get down into the bunker with everyone else and wait for the all-clear signal, and there's sirens and, and all sorts of panic going on because there's another nuclear bombardment from satellite coming. And when the nuclear satellite detonates at London, it triggers a, a volcano, and essentially London is destroyed. You kind of get the impression this is happening all over the world. Yeah. And we get a, a second series of a much faster travel as he, uh, a second series of notes with much faster travel as he escapes the nuclear explosion via his time machine. And he has to go pretty far because he gets trapped in a, a, ca- a cave that essentially grows around him during this volcanic cataclysm, and then just has to go forward until it has worn away and he'll be able to escape. So he goes about 800,000 years into the future. Yeesh, that's some, some long-distance travel. He's putting some miles on this thing. And this is where the bulk of the story takes place. The, the story that most people think of and associate with the time machine is taking place in this far distant time, 800,000 years from now. And it seems kind of paradisical at first. He's at the base of a sphinx, this giant carved monument, but all around is lush vegetation. Yeah, that's a, the, the sphinx is another thing they copied a little too exactly for Wishbone. I'll just let you know. <laughs> 
but yeah there's this giant sphinx there's all this stuff and we also get to see that he's a little bit more of a an action guy than i expected he's not completely lost as to what to do when he finds himself in an alien jungle yeah he goes for a long walk what else would you do yeah he's going for a long walk he's pulling stuff he's kind of getting a little rough and difficult finding his way through and he's kind of getting more and more distressed not to find any people. Yeah. There seems to be no... There's no activity that would make him think that other than this giant sphinx. And who knows how long that's been there. Exactly. But eventually he does find people. Lounging by the river. A bunch of people just hanging out by the river, not doing very much. One of them falls in and is drowning. Everybody else is not doing very much. So he rescues the person who's drowning, which no one else bothered to try to do. It's like the idea of taking any kind of effort to do anything was just literally inconceivable. It would never occur to anyone. And the person he rescued, that turns out to be Weena, played by Yvette Mimu. Yes. Who sadly passed away recently. Yeah. That, that was uh, sad to hear that. Sad to hear about that as well. But... Having done this kind of gives her a reason to start talking to him, and she begins telling him a bit about the way they live, and there's really not much to tell. They hang out, and apparently their food is provided for them in this hall where they go and eat when, they're, when, when it's time to eat, and they stay inside and sleep when it's time to sleep, and um, that's about it. It's something very kindergarten-like in terms of like, it's it's snack time. It's nap time. It's recess. Very, very childlike quality to them. Very infantilized. And this is where, for understandable reasons, the movie diverges from the book somewhat in that mm -hmm. in the book, these were not necessarily human beings as the time traveler would recognize them. They were clearly related to human beings, but it's like they were a different species. They were small. They were frail. They were not really capable of very much. And in, in this, they are, they are humans. They are, tend to be slight, and they tend to be a little small, and they're all kind of blonde and wide-eyed. So they, they do as much as they can to kind of give you that slightly weird alienish feel to them. But they're clearly, you could just as easily say that they're some kind of a weird Nordic commune. I hadn't considered that phrasing, but yeah, that does fit too well. Now I'm imagining a very disturbing crossover between uh, The Time Machine and Midsummer. I'm just imagining Weena <laughs> trying to sing death metal. <laughs> <laughs> but she is curious, and she's surprised to have been saved. Yes. And he, the more he learns, is, is increasingly frustrated mm -hmm. because... They don't do anything. They don't know anything. They haven't preserved anything. He goes, uh, he, he tries to talk to somebody about books, and he said, oh, yeah, there are books somewhere. I can show them to you. And there's this tiny library with books that are literally falling to dust. Nobody's read them. Nobody probably knows how to read. There's a lack of, of curiosity along with a lack of initiative or ability. And it takes a while of him, like, poking and prodding and getting more frustrated to finally find out about, like, some information he can use. The rings. Which Weena finally shows him. Yeah, there were a few things that, that Weena knows because the talking rings told her. And that's a cool prop. That's a cool prop design, I gotta say. That is kind of neat. And that's where... Our hero gets a little bit of the backstory. Because there is some technology left over that still works. And I don't know, how would you describe the ring thing? Um, Wikipedia via Beyblade? <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. <laughs> you spin a metal ring on a, on a slightly concave um, glass surface, and it lights up and plays for you an audio uh, message. Of, like, historical facts. It's not the most efficient system for conveying information, because it literally will talk to you for as long as you spin the ring on this big surface. And as it slows down the way any top will, it the speech slows down and eventually stops, and there doesn't seem to be any place to wait a bookmark either. Yeah. But it was very cool, if impractical. Yeah, 
and it there's kind of a little bit of like there's more going on here than you can tell aspect go like because they're like we see him give this gentle spin to a ring but they keep cutting back to it to show and it keeps spinning so it's like this is spinning for longer than it should and it's like there's glowing pedestal to it and there's this like harmonic sound in the background to the whole thing and it's got a very cool vibe it's just awful ui design and i'll agree with that and we have to acknowledge that the voice of the rings is george freeze yes who plays the reporter the radio reporter making recordings uh in uh war of the worlds and who did a lot of work with george powell and has one of these wonderful distinct authoritative narrator kind of voices so and i think he was uncredited for this role but it's obviously him, and he's such a great voice for the port. This is a guy who could make who could make him ordering a cheeseburger sound like the fate of the world rests on it. <laughs> it is he's got one of those voices, and he, that he's telling you about it because you need to know. Yes, this needs to have two slices and no pickles. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, yeah. Like if I don't get that right, something's bad's gonna happen. I understand. Got it. <laughs> but he hears about kind of how how much humanity messed things up for themselves from the rings. And that's not great for his his hope and happiness about this future he's gone to. Essentially, civilization crumbled. The world became too contaminated. Uh, many moved underground to try to escape the toxic atmosphere. Some remained on the surface or later decided to venture out back onto the surface. But in general, it, it is not the utopia that he assumed the future would be. So he's kind of unhappy with his trip and going to go drive back home. Wait, where's his car? <laughs> Someone took his car. Dude, when's my car? <laughs> yes! <laughs> Dang it. Uh, and caught yeah. me off guard. <laughs> yeah, that big sphinx that he uh, he, he was, was in front of when he first stopped in 800 some odd thousand years in the future, that had a big metal door in it. Yeah. And apparently, the, um, uh, his time machine was dragged back through that big metal door. Because at this point, he's learned about the Morlocks, hasn't he? I think from Lena and she just and, and when they went to the big uh, yes vents. yeah they went to these big vent domes and when asked what's down there she said Morlocks. Turns out that Lena's people, of course, are not the Eloi. They're called, by the way. Mm -hmm. They are not the only people, the only inhabitants of this future world. There's also the Morlocks who live underground and have machines and who apparently regularly hypnotize and harvest Eloy. Well, yeah, and they do it by an interesting method. They fire up a big siren and all the Eloy panic and run for the doors. The doors stay open for a little bit of time and then they close, at which point all the Eloy are okay, all clear. It's the same sound and the same vocabulary that we saw being used back in the 20th century in uh, the stops that the time traveler made. Yeah. The sirens, everyone goes to the underground bunker, and everybody can stop and relax when it's all clear. It's and like there's, there's this memory of that process has persisted for almost 800,000 years. It's the format and the structure and the vocabulary of wartime being used as manipulation. It's, it's being used as this, this lever and this tool to manipulate the Eloi into sending sacrifices down to the Morlocks. And this is where I think that the people who made this movie had points they wanted to make, which were not necessarily just right in line with the points that H.G. Wells was making. Wells, when he wrote his book, was making a social point about increasing divides in, in status and, and economic power and, and everything else, eventually leading to there being two different species. Uh, and 
George Powell and the people who made this movie with him seem to be more about the path that humanity was on when it comes to warfare and politics and manipulation. Yeah, the book version, the Eloy kind of more have the Morlocks who work in the background to make everything happen for them. And they get to live their ideal idyllic life on the backs of the Morlock uh, effort. As long as they didn't think too hard about the fact that some of them uh, periodically disappear because they're taken by the Morlocks. Right. In this one, it's very much more... The Eloy cattle are kept into this lovely little pen up top while yes. the Morlocks do their thing. <laughs> and that's a very different feeling from the book. And naturally, they create a sort of romance between George and Weena, which is a little bit creepy, given the way that the Eloy are presented. And, and yet, of course... Equally predictably, she's one of the ones that are taken by the the Morlocks in their latest harvest, so he's got to go save her, as well as find his time machine. And that leads to big underground confrontations between uh, the time traveler, George, and the Morlocks. And the Morlocks, unlike the Eloy in the movie, the Morlocks are not really particularly human anymore. They're these weird, misshapen orc-like creatures with gray skin and stringy hair living underground. Yeah, there was something a little bit Sid and Marty Croft about the way the Morlocks look here. There's something a bit Land of the Lost going on. Yeah, a lot of puffy rubber suit kind of stuff going on there. Yeah. And a lot of uncertain tech. There's plenty of pipes and pumps and things going on, but not a lot of what they're doing with it all that I could figure out. Yeah, this is where we really get the steam and steampunk. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of of steam power being used by the Morlocks for something, run the to run the the sirens, I guess, or yeah. to grow the food that they fatten up the the Eloy on. I'm just seeing a whole lot of furnaces in stone caverns, and I have Minecraft flashbacks. So, <laughs> and yet the Morlocks do not like fire because they don't like bright light. Yeah, a lot of glowy things for people who don't like bright light, but I guess. Usually they're not used to having lighting crews in there for film. <laughs> and um, and ultimately, George rescues Weena. He rescues the other people who are down there and still alive. And he does that through lots of fighting, lots of waving torches around. And eventually, the Eloy who are down there, who he's rescuing, kind of watch what he's doing and learn how to make a fist and start fighting against the Morlocks themselves. Yeah. Which, there's a weird tension going on here in this movie. On the one hand, it seems to be a very strong, a, a set of very strong statements about the futility of war. And on the other hand, it's the only thing that's going to save these people is if they learn how to fight. Yes. And it is, like... It's kind of interesting also that like he starts out being a man who is so against war and so much like ignoring the idea of his technology being used for it. And that's not the purpose and not the point. Then he's goes through little snippets of war and kind of drags the concept with him into the future. And we see him turn into a shirt, like rip parts of his shirt, you know, tie it to a rope to make a torch his his am, ammunition of uh, matchbook is like slowly wearing down, and he becomes kind of a dramatic action hero in a fighting wartime sort of story aspect going on there. He he brings the concept he did not like with him. Yes, and he he is very much that square jawed, super competent, two fisted man of science that we talked about a bit in discussing Clayton Forrester in uh, yes uh, in. War of the Worlds, a similar type that you're going to see in a lot of 50s and 60s sci-fi. But you're right, we kind of see that as a transformation in George. And and it is something that changes in him as he adapts to this environment. So maybe the, the, the statement that's being made is, yes, war is terrible. There are times when you have to fight. And and he becomes the him being becoming this avatar of this concept lost that 
made and destroyed people before is kind of interesting because by the time it's, it's ending, he is leading a, a band of, I guess the closest they've ever had to battle hardened Eloy out of the caves for the first time ever. And then guiding them all to pretty much bomb the Morlocks through their own vent system. And I, you kind of get the impression that this is a final battle between the Eloy and the Morlocks, which also gives me the impression like there are a few dozen of each. And is that the entire world? Yeah. A few dozen Eloy on the surface and right below them, a few dozen Morlocks and that's it. And maybe that's, that's so. Maybe that's so. Maybe there's pockets like this all over the place and this one going in revolt is going to spiral out to the other ones or who knows they don't they don't tackle that but they really they really mess up the morlocks stuff before this goes uh to the finale and it appears that now the eloy are gonna they're gonna have to learn how to fish and farm and yeah. take care of themselves which they've never had to do but in the fighting in the the issues he gets sent back again Mm-hmm. He he has to recover his machine from the remaining Morlocks and has to figure out what to do, but he goes back to his own time. Yeah, he goes back to one week after he departed. And he had to, because he had invited all his friends for dinner. He couldn't leave them in the lurch having issued an invitation. And he gets there, and they are, you know... They were like, we haven't heard from you in a week. And they were a little skeptical before about whether or not the machine he presented actually was doing what it said. Well, this is, is actually where we, we skipped some of the, the, the framing, some of the book okay, ending yes. of this movie, because at the very beginning, it's all of his friends showing up and for dinner at his place as they've been invited and he's not there. And then like, they have instructions and his housekeeper has instructions that they should all go ahead with dinner. And then he stumbles through the door in his clothes and tatters and he's injured and he's dirty and exhausted. And that's when he starts telling us the story that begins a week before when they had their first demonstration of the time machine. Now I do think that if he, he went back so that he could make that dinner, he could have gone a day earlier he- and you know, Take uh, taking a bath and and put on fresh clothes. You kind of yeah. He coulda. He really shoulda. Points for dramatic entrance though. <laughs> I mean, he's got the full billowing smoke machine going on. Very cool entrance at the beginning of the movie. There. Very cool entrance. But his his friends have to acknowledge that what he's taught, what he says he's been able to do, is real. Yeah, some of them still resist. They still resist, but he's brought back a flower from the future that matches nothing. Mm-hmm. The tail is wild, but he's got he's beaten up and bruised to prove it. Something happened to him, obviously, and there's a an internal consistency to his story. Mm-hmm. Sebastian Cabot uh, plays kind of the most skeptical of his friends and does a pretty good job with that. Yeah. So he's come back with this tail. He... Still has the time machine, although now it's out in his garden because of where the Morlocks dragged it uh, a few dozen yards to get Dang. it behind their door. Dang, Morlocks. But it's not, it's not done for him. No. Because he he's got time travel, so he drags the time machine back into his lab and takes off again. Because in the future... On one side, where his is where the door is, where he was trapped in where the Morlocks were. And on the other side, is that where the Eloy are? And he can move something in space here and move back through in time again and make it where he needs to go. And that's a very cool little ending they've got. It is. And we see Philby kind of figure this out and explain it to the housekeeper as to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And also notice that George brought three books with him. And they're assuming, probably correctly, that he's gone back to the 800,000 years in the future to help 
the Eloi build a civilization again. I forget what books he brought. They don't tell us. Yeah. And that's an interesting question. You know, what, what three books would you bring if you were trying to help kickstart a new civilization? And that is a good question. Well, listeners, if you have ideas about that, let us know. Yes. Uh, you can use uh, the contact page on, uh, on our website, immproject.com, or you can hit us up on Twitter at uh, immpcast. But yeah, tell us what three books you'd take to the future to rebuild civilization. That's a good question. But it is a good kind of hopeful ending. Mm-hmm. It is definitely a more hopeful ending than we get in the book. Yes. In the book, when, when the time traveler is escaping the Morlocks, he jumps farther into the future and essentially in two or maybe three stops sees the death of the world. Yeah, he watches the heat death of the universe in a very bleak kind of way in the actual book. He goes forward for a long time and like the only living things he sees are these weird crab-like creatures chasing these weird butter- butterfly-like creatures through a landscape that has only this lichenous vegetation. And then he sees the earth about to be swallowed by the sun as it is, uh, uh, it's all coming to, to, uh, to an end. Not a cheerful ending in the, in the novel. Not as cheerful. Really cool album cover. Not as cheerful. <laughs> the ending of this room movie reminds me a little bit of the ending of Interstellar. Oh, yeah. Our hero is, he, he can't stay where he is anymore, so he leaves again to help the person he connected with rebuild a civilization. Oh, you've got a good point. Yeah. It does have a lot of parallel to that. Hmm. But it does end with an interesting note to be able to look at our normal questions, though. That is true. Well, it's a movie. So screen or no screen? I'm going to say screen. This one was really good. Some of these older films don't hold up as well, and I'll be the first to admit that. But this one... It just has a level of polish and a level of smooth presentation that it was just really good. Yeah, it's it's like how, no matter how you feel about the design of a particular piece of furniture, it it's possible to see something that is so meticulously crafted that it is compelling. And that's that's what this is like. It, it's this is not just a nice chair. This is a nice red velvet chair with a chronometer in front of it and a giant crystal topped lever and a giant wheel behind you. And hey, exactly. If you're going to build it, you might as well build it with velvet and polished brass. Exactly. (laughs) And the War of the Worlds adaptation, I remembered that and I really expected that that would hold up. And the parts that were really good did hold up. That last act kind of falls apart, like like we said. This movie... I knew I wanted to show it to you and I wanted to watch it again, but I really wasn't sure how well it was going to hold up. And I was pleasantly surprised. It held up for me better than than I might have expected it to. It's not a movie without problems, without rough spots, but it is it is in so many ways so well put together that it is it is worth watching. So I also say screen. Mm-hmm. It's always interesting with adaptations to talk about our next question. Yeah, that that is a challenge. But our next question is always revive, reboot, or rest in peace. I want to make one thing to note, which is the fact that this movie itself is one of the cited like design elements for the panned 2002 The Time Machine film. Yes, it, it did have that adaptation and i did see that when it was in theaters and it was not good not everything about it was bad but it just didn't come together as a good movie it had some good performances it had a few good ideas a few really off track ideas and none of it ever came together so i'm not a fan of that movie but But i can see where they they studied this george powell version partly because it, it is such a guidepost for interpreting what Wells wrote. Right. So we kind of got to acknowledge that that elephant that will be or is or wi- or once was in the room, depending on your current <laughs> frame of tempor- temporal reference. But I guess our question is, 
do we want other versions of the time machine and how much are they going to be tied to this interpretation? Yeah. So I guess a reboot would just be another adaptation of the time machine. Right. I don't know. I mean, I could see it being done well. I don't see it being necessary. I could see it being done better than the 2002 version. Yeah. But I still don't know that we necessarily need a new adaptation of the time machine. And if you if you adapt the time machine and you set it at the turn of the last century, you're just competing head-to-head with this movie, and you're probably not going to surpass it. So why do that? If instead you adapt the time machine and you make it a contemporary story the way it was for Wells, it was a story set at the time he was writing it, I'd be more interested in a reboot that did that And yet the world is so different. Technology is so different. It would become a very different story. And Mm -hmm. and yet we also know more about geology and evolution and physics. And there might be ways you could make it more interesting. Absolutely. And in some ways, the time machine set up the concept of time travel science fiction in and of itself to some extent, in the way it's perceived in media now. I can look at it and say that you want. You want time the you want the time machine set for different times when it was made. At some point, you're talking about Back to the Future. At some point, you're talking about Steins Gate. You're talking about other things that tackle the concept of time travel and its repercussions. Depending on how vague you get when you're moving it outside of the time machine set when the time machine set. And for me, if that means we have to limit the time machine as the book to when the time machine is set, I don't know if we need another version than this. Yeah. So I'm getting confused. Then. I agree with that. We don't necessarily need another version that's set when Wells's book was set or when this movie is set. But when I'm talking about a new adaptation of the time machine set contemporary to today, I really am talking specifically about Wells's story, okay. not just a time travel story. The concept it presents. And yeah. and he presents that time travel is in some ways just the the mechanism for exploring some ideas and conclusions about society. Yeah. And it was that for Wells, I think. I get what you're and, saying. And you know, it's it's not as if we have left the idea of an extremely polarized society behind us by 120 years, Good point. be it financially or politically or any other ways. So I think there could be interesting stories. There could be interesting ways to tell this story starting from a a starting point of the 2020s. Yeah. And going forward into time, who knows how far into the future. So I guess that does give a good point towards reboot. Interestingly enough, revive just becomes the story of Eloy civilization it could have an interesting thing of Eloy civilization with one working time machine though. <laughs> it's like telling a story about like the, these strange elf like people who have built themselves up. And it turns out that there's this one thing passed down by the head, head of their little tribe, which is this thing that takes a guy back and it takes him to, <laughs> you know, yeah previous times and do a do a time do a story going backwards could be interesting that'd be a different way to do that same sort of like commentary on society but looking at it from a different lens yeah it would get so cumbersome yeah if the time machine was something he could continue to use once he got back to rejoin weena and the eloy it's hard to imagine why it wouldn't and yet i don't know time machines can break stories yeah when a trip to the store means going backwards in time, it gets a little weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no, if he's got a time machine, there's no worry about which three books he chose because he can go back and get whatever other books he wants. Yeah. It is kind of unfortunate he built a one-seater. <laughs> be kind of weird if he was ferrying Eloy back into his time period, like some sort of time-traveling lift driver. Your driver will be here seven minutes ago. <laughs> yes. Exactly. 
It's like, <laughs> there's, a, there's a different story in here, but I'm not sure I want to explore that one. How would you rate tomorrow's ride? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't really, I'm not looking for a, a revival. I don't need a sequel. I don't need a prequel. I'm sure George invented other interesting things before, but I don't really need stories about them. I could be interested in a reboot, another adaptation. I'm not necessarily looking for it. Yeah. But uh, I I could see that being interesting. So I if that happened, if someone made that, I would give it a look, but I'm not going to say I'm I'm eager for it. Yeah, I think this is a rest in peace, but don't stop making time making versions of t- of uh the time machine. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah. Time travel is is always an interesting trope if if it's used carefully and in either it drives the story or if you used haphazardly, it breaks the story. It can't just be a, a thing in the background. Exactly. <sighs> well, whether we were a thing in the background or something that you were listening to very intently, we thank you, listeners, very much for downloading this episode and for, for taking this journey with us. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with uh, more tales of media from, from a distant time back in the 20th century. Yes. In the meantime, Dad, when can they find you online? Oh, you can find me most times in places. You can find me, uh, go to bymatthewporter.com, and you'll find links to other things, other places you can find me. You can also find me on, uh, on Twitter as uh, bymatthewporter.com. Wait, oh, excuse me, not .com. There's no .com on Twitter. <laughs> uh, bymatthewporter.com. You can find me on Twitter as bymatthewporter. You can find me on YouTube as bymatthewporter. Kind of look for that, and you'll find me. Ian, where can people find you? I can be found at itemcrafting.com as itemcrafting on Twitter and itemcrafting live on Twitch. And you can find the podcast uh, at immproject.com. And that's where you'll find links to all of our back episodes and you'll find our contacts page. We still want to know what three books would you have chosen? And you can also find there a link to our store. If you like t-shirts, coffee mugs, notebooks, other fun things with, uh, with weird inside jokes on them. And you will find a link to our Discord and a link to our Patreon. Thanks very much for anybody who's supporting us there. Uh, You help keep the podcast going. And if you support us on Patreon at the Movie Club level, you'll get a surprise DVD in the mail periodically. You can also find the podcast uh, on Twitter at IMMPCast. In the meantime, go find something new to watch. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP Podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter. I'm his dad, he's my son, and we're continuing with what I think is turning out to be H.G. Wells Month. I think so. Because I made Ian watch another movie, and last episode we talked about the 1953 George Powell movie adapting H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Yeah. Today, we're talking about the 1960 movie by George Powell, adapting H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. Wait, what?